We just began a new series in the Gospel of Mark. We only started last week. You can listen to uh, our introduction uh, last week on on our website, all these talks on our website. But uh, this is number two in uh, a series of 16 talks. We're we're aiming to finish on Easter Sunday, uh, Resurrection Sunday, and the resurrection, I don't want to spoil it for you, but the resurrection happens at the end of Mark. And uh, so hopefully we can time that well. Um, now, sometimes in life, there are moments when you know something important is about to happen. I don't know if you saw the very moving press conference. Uh, I think it was early on Friday morning that Andy Murray gave. Um, He's in Australia at the moment. He's about to play in the Australian Open. And as soon as he walked into the room, you knew that something wasn't right. One of the journalists who was there uh, later on Friday morning wrote these words. From the moment Andy Murray walked into the news conference at Melbourne Park, you felt a sense that something wasn't quite right. Asked a simple opening question of how are you feeling, an emotional Murray struggled to get an answer of not great out before covering his face with his cap and sobbing underneath. You you could tell as he walked into the room that there was something not quite right. Sometimes there are moments in life where you can suddenly feel the tension and everyone's kind of just suddenly pricks up their ears there's something unusual. The atmosphere is crackling. Everyone is suddenly alert. What's about to happen? Why do I start there? I, I think as we're getting into these early chapters of Mark, as we come to the beginning of chapter 2 that Richard read to us, I, I think this sense of something brewing is what we feel as we move into chapter 2. Something is about to go down. And we're going to find out what it is this afternoon. So let's uh, set the scene. First of all, just a few comments on this. Up to this point, Jesus has already, as, as you'll know, attracted popular attention because of his powerful teaching and his healing miracles. Um, you you can see that in parts of chapter 1. But unusually, even though people are flocking to hear him, there's one night where Jesus goes off, he he gets up early before the sun comes up, and he spends half the night praying. His friends try and find him. And when they get to him, they're like, everyone's looking for you, where have you been? And Jesus says, we're going to go somewhere else. Even though the crowds are flocking to him, Jesus wants to go on a preaching trip, effectively, around the nearby countryside villages. But here at the start of chapter 2, having been away, Jesus comes home. Jesus, it seems, grew up in Nazareth. At some point, Nazareth isn't that far from Capernaum, on the shore of Lake Galilee. It's at the north of Lake Galilee. Nazareth is more in inland it's not the sea but you know what I mean away from the coast Jesus must have moved to Capernaum and it seems initially that he tries to sneak back home and word gets out and people literally flock to the house where Jesus is living to the point where he is almost besieged inside like some kind of celebrity Mark tells us here that the house was so rammed full that people were queuing outside craning their necks to hear Jesus it's interesting Mark, Mark uses an unusual phrase here he, that people people were straining to hear as Jesus preached the word to them packed to the rafters people in the street outside craning to hear Jesus preach the word so the scene is set the delighted crowds are present there's also as we'll see in a moment a few critics present 
And what happens next here has to be one of the most dramatic incidents in the whole of Mark's gospel or any of the gospels. It's almost comical to begin with, but it has far-reaching consequences. And I, I, I want to try and show you this afternoon that it reveals a great deal about who Jesus is and why he came into the world. Four friends come down the street to this house bringing their friend who's paralyzed. They, they, they carry him, I presume, one on each corner. They, they basically carry him on a mat and when they arrive, they can't get in. And you can, you can imagine them in the street outside, jostling and, and trying to, there's crowds of people here and they're trying to get, not just themselves, it's one thing to like shoulder barge your own way in, but if you're carrying someone on their bed in, people telling them off, be quiet, I'm trying to listen. Jesus is preaching the word and you're trying to bring someone on their bed. But these friends are resourceful and creative. If they can't get in the door, they'll drop through the roof. And I, I, I feel when I'm reading this, I can hear the Mission Impossible theme tune playing here. It's, I, I, I want to whistle it, I won't. But they, 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 I don't know whether they go next door. We, a typical house in these days would have had a flat roof. And uh, I, I, was, I was reading up on this. Flat roof, you, you, can, you can imagine this. Beams going across, and then smaller pieces of wood going the other way. And then they would pack the whole thing with soil, and then roll it until it was solid and waterproof. Someone I read said that these roofs would be about a foot thick by the time they were finished. And sometimes there'd be steps up onto the top of the house. This would be a place to get some fresh air or hang the laundry out to dry in the hot sun. So I, I don't know if these guys went to the next house and went up their steps and then leapt across and, and kind of passed their friend across the gap. But they found themselves on the roof. The text here literally says, look with me. At verse 4, since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it. The text says in the original language, literally, they unroofed the roof. They unroofed the roof and they dug through that foot of solid material. So as Jesus is preaching the word inside this house, imagine this. There's banging and I don't know. And then all of a sudden cracks start to appear and bits of twigs start falling down and suddenly they can see cracks of daylight appearing through the roof. And then they see four sweaty faces look through the hole and go, hello. And they're looking up at the hole in the roof and these guys go, hang on a minute. And they start to lower their friend through on his bed right into the middle of the house in front of Jesus. What a scene. I think it would be good for a moment just for us to pause and just highlight the determination of these four friends. For one thing, how much do they love their friend? They're even prepared to wreck one of their neighbor's house's roofs to get their friend in front of Jesus. But look at the response of Jesus himself in this, in this scene. Jesus is preaching to them. The roof comes in. This guy comes down. And Jesus, Mark, Mark says in verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith. This is actually the first explicit reference in Mark to people having faith as a response to Jesus. And it's very striking, or it should be very striking to us, 
that this response of faith here, the first one in Mark, involves doing something, not just knowing something. These men risk everything here because they believe that Jesus can heal their paralyzed friend. This is faith in action, isn't it? And their determination, when they came to an obstacle, they went around it, or rather over it and through it. They, they didn't, none of them gave up when the door closed in their face. I, I, I can imagine them say, oh, we can't get in. It mustn't be God's will. You know, the, the door's closed. We'll, we'll leave it for today. The, the, these, these men are determined in their faith. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus describes this kind of faith. Let me read this quote to you. This is Jesus speaking in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. In other words, Jesus is saying, those who want something spiritually, they go and get it. it there's, there's almost a note of violence. There's, there, there's not a note of timidity and hesitation in that. Jesus is saying, those who want it, go for it. That's the kind of determined fit. These four friends literally take the kingdom by storm. And this is the kind of faith that seems to invite the admiration and response of the Lord Jesus. I want you to notice too that I, 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 I sense here something of a contrast with the crowds here too. Apparently crowds seem to play a big, a big role in the Gospel of Mark. I, I, I didn't know this. But Mark refers to crowds, get this, almost 40 times before chapter 10. 40 times Mark talks about the crowds, the crowds, the crowds. I, I think what Mark's trying to say is Jesus became rapidly very popular. But there is something else about crowds. Crowds are, I think by definition, quite passive. Yes, people are listening. Yes, there is a buzz. And Jesus is always said to be compassionate towards the crowds. But Mark, even so, never ever describes the crowds as having faith. In the end, actually, these crowds are shown to be fickle. And by the end of Mark's gospel, such crowd as there was, was calling for his crucifixion. Crucify him. Crucify him, the crowd screamed. So I think crowds are never really an accurate measure of success. Jesus is not swept away by the crowds. He isn't seduced by popularity. It seems to me that Jesus is always looking for quality rather than quantity. There's something about being in the crowd that is to be a spectator, curious, Passive, watching, there's safety in numbers, isn't there? But if you're only ever in the crowd, you'll never really have the kind of active faith that Jesus seems to be looking for and responding to. True faith always finds a way to get to Jesus, whatever the cost. 
True faith always puts its head above the parapet and breaks through the crowd. True faith doesn't just know things. True faith does things. And I think these four friends, in their love and in their determination, don't they demonstrate something of active, almost violent faith in Jesus? Now, I, I suppose you might ask the question, why do I need this faith? And if I need it, how do I get it? And I think one of the answers, I think the answer to that question will come by keeping our eyes on Jesus. So in, in the time we've got this afternoon, I want us to keep our eyes on Jesus. And my premise here is that the thing that will cause the right kind of faith to be born and grow and rise in our hearts personally, the thing that will cause that kind of faith to rise in our hearts towards Jesus is to see who he is and what he's really like. That, that, that is, that's how faith will be born in your heart and mine. To see Jesus, faith rises in response to that. So, here's a paralyzed man hanging from the roof on his bed, looking up into the face of Jesus expectantly. And now there's genuine anticipation. How will Jesus respond to this dramatic interruption? I, th I think what happens next actually is arguably more dramatic than the initial abseil down through the roof. Because Jesus does at least three surprising things here. And you'll see, if you're following the notes in the program, you'll see we've just got three very simple headings, three shocks in this story. So let's have a look at shock number one. We'll rattle through these. There we go. You have to shake it. Shock. Oh, no, not twice. Did you do that? I'll throw it away. Shock number one. Here's shock number one. Jesus does not immediately give the man what he thinks he needs. I think this is very striking. The first surprise is that Jesus seems to be the only person in the room who overlooks the fact that this man's legs aren't working. He's just come down on a bed through the ceiling. He's looking up into the face of Jesus. His friends with their determined faith have brought their desperate friend to the one they believe can heal him and how does Jesus respond? Verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. You can almost hear the crowd say, What about his legs? What about his legs? Can't you see that this man's desperate to walk? Immediately, this should alert us and tell us that Jesus is the kind of person who will often challenge us to go further and to go deeper than we often expect or want to go. It is as, it is as if Jesus says to this man, you think you know what you need, but you don't really. Now, of course, Jesus understands this man's problems. He, he sees his desperate suffering. He's going to get to that in a moment. But the first thing for this man to realize, I, I want to say the first thing for you and I to realize is that our deepest problem 
our biggest issue is not what people have done to us. It isn't our circumstances. It isn't what has happened to us or is happening to us. Our biggest problem actually isn't even our suffering and pain. Our biggest, deepest problem is what the Bible calls our sin. This is not to suggest that this man, his, his problems were trivial, and it's not to suggest that your problems are, are, are trivial, or, or mine, they're not. But this is the main thing for Jesus. And I, I think given the seriousness of his physical problems, I, I, I think this should suggest to us that our sin is a very big problem indeed, shouldn't it? If Jesus starts with this. This man is expressing his deepest desire and Jesus is essentially saying to him, you're not going far enough. It is as if this man is saying, if only I could walk, then I would be happy. My life would be complete. I, if I could walk, I don't think I would ever complain again. Everything would be okay if my legs worked. And Jesus here pushes him back a little. Jesus is asking him, would it? Would you? Would you really be happy? From what we've already seen of Jesus in Mark's gospel, Jesus clearly can give this man what he needs. The question Jesus is gently raising here is, would it satisfy him? Of course, initially it would be amazing. It ended up being amazing. He might be happy and feel complete for a while. But after a few weeks or a few months, a few years, he's got used to his legs working again. Is it not the case that there would be something else that was missing? That initial joy would wear off and something else would be needed to make this man as complete as he felt in that moment. I don't think there's anything wrong with his desires here. The problem is, when we think that if our deepest desires were fulfilled, it would lead to satisfaction. I, I think all of us tend to build our lives on something that we believe will complete us, fulfill us, make us enough, satisfy us. We're all different. We've all got different things that we might think would deliver that. But we all, deep down in our hearts, have these if only dot 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 then. I would be dot, dot, dot. To use religious language here, this is true even for someone who's not a religious person. To use religious language here, it is if we make whatever our if only is into a kind of savior. As if that thing will deliver us from disappointment, abandonment, disillusionment. The problem isn't so much the desire, it is the belief that that something or someone other than Jesus will deliver some kind of salvation and make us complete. I think Jesus is gently pointing out here that all of these substitute saviors will disappoint us 
ultimately in the end. There's something in our nature that is restless if we don't have what we think we need. And then very often when we get what we think we need, we're still unhappy because it didn't deliver what we thought it would deliver when we were craving it. So we're discontent before we find what we need and then we're dissatisfied after. It's never enough. Sometimes the thing we thought we wanted when we get it turns on us and mocks us. I think it's important for us to recognize that nothing that we strive for in this way to meet our ultimate needs can do it like Jesus can. Jesus is the only true Savior with a capital S who will never disappoint us and actually the Savior who forgives us even when we fail. Very often, I think like this man, when we come to Jesus, often we're coming with what we think are our deepest needs, and what we're effectively doing is trying to use Jesus to give us what we think we really need to make us complete. It seems harsh at first, but Jesus says, you're wrong. Your real issue is much, much deeper than you think it is. So the first thing we see about Jesus in this first shock is that I, I want to say, I, I say Jesus is almost like, like a surgeon in a way. He, he's challenging. He's always wanting to take us to the heart of things. He won't ever be superficial or shallow Sometimes he'll cut deep. Sometimes it can be painful and hard for us to grasp. He isn't just wanting to mend this guy's legs. He's wanting to forgive his sins and make him whole and clean. And in the end, right with God. There's a second shock. And shock number two. Thank you, Sam. Jesus forgives this man even though he doesn't seem to ask for it. Now, here is a very interesting thing because almost everywhere you go in the Bible, you'll find that the idea of forgiveness comes to us when we believe and repent. In fact, Jesus himself preaches this very thing in the previous chapter, the first sermon Jesus preaches in Mark chapter 1. We looked at it very briefly last week. Um, where are we? Verse 15, chapter 1. Jesus goes into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom, has, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So this man comes to Jesus looking for healing. He shows no obvious public sign here of confessing his sins. He doesn't seem to ask for forgiveness. And yet Jesus immediately forgives his sins. What's all that about? I suppose there's a little clue in verse 8, we'll get to verse 8 in a minute when we talk about the critics immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking Jesus knows our innermost thoughts he immediately perceives our deepest desires and inclinations and I, I, I think what that must mean here is that Jesus, in this moment, saw some fragile, tiny desire that wasn't yet even put into the form of words. Jesus somehow, as he looks down at this man on his bed, 
senses that within him there's a yearning to know God's mercy and kindness and grace. So here's something else for us to know about Jesus. We've seen something of his challenge. He's truthful, provocative, incisive. But we mustn't make the mistake of thinking that he is hard or harsh or demanding. Right alongside this deep, incisive, surgeon-like challenge, here we see his sympathetic willingness we might even say his eagerness. Jesus is quick to respond. He is eager to respond. Isn't it beautiful? He's so utterly ready to pour out and lavish his forgiveness and kindness on this man, that Jesus here even responds to the smallest, most fragile, most weak. It's not even words, it's desires. This man hasn't even verbalized his desire, but Jesus knows it, and like a flash, he's right onto it. So, that must mean that coming to Jesus isn't some kind of competition for us to pass. There's no qualification here. There's no kind of measure of sincerity. It's not like Jesus, you never hear Jesus say to someone, I don't, think you're, I don't think your faith is quite sincere enough. Go away and just work up a bit more and then come back when you've got enough. It, it's almost like this guy, you, you couldn't imagine a smaller particle of faith in this man. And Jesus responds. Sometimes in the course of my role as a minister, I talk to people. It's a shame, isn't it? You have to do that. <laughs> and sometimes I hear people, you can imagine this, people say to me, oh, I, I wish I had faith. I really wish I could believe. I wish, I don't know. Sometimes our problem might be that what we're doing is we're looking inside of our own hearts trying to work up some kind of something to respond to Jesus with. But this kind of faith, it, it really is a gift, isn't it? If you're trying somehow to work up faith, you're starting in the wrong place. What I, what I want you to hear loud and clear is that what you need to do is go to Jesus. who, with nothing really to work with in us, creates his own openings, gives faith, and then responds to its most fragile expression. What I'm trying to say is, don't put your faith in your faith. Put your faith in Jesus. So, in the most amazing way, Jesus, at the same time, combines this deep challenge with this tremendous eagerness quick to forgive Jesus isn't stingy he isn't playing games he isn't hard hearted there's challenge and there's eagerness this is a Jesus friends who will always tell you the truth but at the same time he will always love you to the max what about the third shock Sam go on you move it on for us because I'll make a house for it 
Shock number three. Jesus deliberately provokes a conflict here that will ultimately lead to his death. That's quite a big shock, surprise. I think at this point, Jesus could have quietly healed the man and then have a little quiet word with him. His sins are forgiven. It's all right, go in peace. But in front of this packed house with critics sitting there with their arms folded watching, with this man having abseiled through the reef, in a loud voice, Jesus says in front of everyone, Son, your sins are forgiven. Up to now in Mark, there's been a lot of healings that are referred to more generally. There's times when people flock to Jesus. There's, there's one in chapter 1. Um, where are we? Jesus goes to Peter, Simon Peter's mother-in-law's house and people verse 32 chapter 1 verse 32 that evening after sunset the people brought to Jesus all who were ill demon possessed the whole town gathered at the door and Jesus healed many who had various diseases he drove out demons but he wouldn't let the demons speak because they knew who he was people are flocking but every now and again, there's, there's general stuff going on in the background. Every now and again, Mark describes in an extended way a particular example. And this is one of them. And I think one of the reasons Mark describes this particular one, apart from the fact that it's very dramatic with someone coming through the roof, is because Jesus raises the stakes here with this forgiveness issue in a way that deliberately, knowingly, brings him into conflict with the religious establishment. Now, the fact that the religious teachers of the law, it says, were there, shows, I think, that this conflict hadn't yet become public. There's no bouncers on the door saying, if you're a teacher of the law, you can't come in here, mate, you're not on our side. The teachers of the law are there, they're present, they're in the house. So this, this conflict hasn't yet reached full bloom, if you like. Up to now, there's only been joy in Mark's gospel. Everyone is welcome. There's, there's, there's nobody excluded. The house is rammed, but these teachers are not just there as part of the crowd, they're there metaphorically with their clipboards they're there checking up on this new rabbi who is he and so after a great start in the gospel of mark this next section sees arguments developing about religious authority luke will get into this with you a little bit next week but in in chapter three these teachers say to jesus why are you always eating with sinners do you not know who they are? Why do your disciples not take fasting seriously like John the Baptist's disciples did? Why do your disciples not respect the Sabbath? All the time they're asking Jesus. There's a clash here, questions. And if, you, if you've got your finger on the page, just turn with me. This all culminates in chapter 3. Just go with me to chapter 3 and verse 5. There's one occasion where Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. And these leaders are furious with him. And in chapter 3 and verse 5, Jesus looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. And then we're told that the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill him. Jesus. You know, sometimes in this world, the Beatles once sang, didn't they? All you need is love. And this is a cry in our culture, isn't it? If only everyone could get along. Here is the greatest king going about 
loving people, healing them, demonstrating his power, if ever there should have been peace on earth and they can't stand him and they go out to plot to kill him. What a world we live in. Let's get back to the story. As soon as Jesus forgives this man's sin, these religious leaders are muttering to themselves. And their complacency and disrespect is shown in the little phrase they use. Look at verse 7. Well, verse 6, now some teacher of the law was sitting there thinking to themselves, thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? I love, I love that descriptive Jesus. The descriptive Jesus. This fellow. Who does this fellow think he is? They're sitting there in judgment on Jesus. Who does he think he is? Now, we, we have to concede at this point that their theology is good. Because what they say is, who can forgive sins but God alone? That's some good theology right there and we, we could use a silly example to illustrate this on, on a Wednesday in our church we have a staff meeting and um, imagine if in our staff meeting we're, we're all there as a leaders team and suddenly I stand up and smack Fenton right in the face I'm not like I, t- I took too much joy in that didn't I I'm not trying to Imagine smacking him in the face. He's a lovely brother. But let's imagine I smacked him right in the face. And as the dust settled and he mopped his face up and put some of his teeth back in, Luke then turns to me and says, Ian, I forgive you for what you just did. Thank you, Luke. That means a lot. Why, Why would that be strange? Why would it be strange for Luke to forgive me the, the reason it would be strange is because the only person who can forgive is the one who's been wronged, isn't it? The only person who could forgive me is Fenton. Please. <laughs> uh, the only person who could forgive me is Fenton, gracious man that he is. So the, these, this, this theology is good. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Actually, you know, even when we sin against one another, there is an ultimate sense that even when we sin against one another, because we are in God's world here, when we sin against one another, ultimately we're actually sinning against God. It's a story in the Old Testament of King David. We were thinking about David recently. He committed some horrible sins and a prophet came to him convicted him and the cry of David's heart was even though he'd wronged other people what was it that came out of his mouth oh God against you and you alone have I sinned only God can forgive sins their theology is good but their conclusion is wrong only God can forgive sins therefore this upstart of a fellow he's blaspheming this is very interesting because at the end of Mark's gospel that is the exact charge that gets Jesus killed you can read about it in Mark chapter 14 what begins here in this house with the hole in the roof and very quickly develops into murderous plotting in a few pages, actually ends with the high priest tearing his clothes in fury at Jesus and screaming, who does he think he is? Now, there are a few things to notice here. First of all, Jesus knows their thoughts too. He sees their hidden motives, criticisms. He sees the hardness of their hearts. 
But secondly, this is the shock, really. Rather than seeking to play this down, Jesus ramps the whole thing up dramatically and deliberately. We, we have already seen in Mark chapter 1, Jesus telling people to keep things secret. That Jesus heals a man of leprosy at the end of chapter 1. And he tells him not to tell anyone. But here, Jesus goes right for the jugular. He could have said, calm down, dear. He could have said, calm down. Don't overreact, guys. I was merely saying that God will forgive his sins. That's what I meant. Okay then, phew. We'll, we'll leave it for now. We'll come back another day and check you out again. Je- Jesus could have, like, de-escalated this conflict. But he doesn't calm things down at all. He deliberately escalates the situation and he makes the issue of his own identity central and crucial by asking an amazing question in verse 9. Why are you thinking these things, Jesus says? And here's the question. It's a brilliant question. Which is easier? Which is easier? To say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? It's a brilliant question, because you could answer it in different ways. The first way to take it is that... If anyone claims to forgive, you can't see that. It's invisible, isn't it? So the forgiveness side of this is like, it's easy to say, but it's impossible to verify and to prove. So Jesus seems to use that argument in the next verse. He seems to say, Here, I, I'm going to heal the man visibly, to prove to you that I can do the invisible thing, which is to forgive sins. That's the way Jesus seems to go. And the effect on people there was stunning. They were amazed, it says. They praised God. They said, we've never seen anything like this. And I believe them. They hadn't. We've never seen anything like this. But notice that Jesus uses this incident as a teaching opportunity to verse 10. Jesus says, I I want you to know, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus often uses this title, the Son of Man. It it goes back to the Old Testament, the book of Daniel. This this is a messianic title. It's not a common one in Jesus' day. I I think people prefer messianic titles that were more about the Messiah being a warrior and a king. So everyone had this nationalistic idea that the Messiah was going to come and smash the Romans and nobody really took any notice of the title Son of Man so Jesus in typical fashion picks that one to self-designate because it doesn't have all the baggage of all the others it's a title Jesus loved so Jesus says I want you to know that the Son of Man the Messiah the Christ he is the one who has authority on earth to forgive the sins of other human beings And again, Jesus is introducing the idea here that the promised Messiah is not another great human. This Son of Man, if he can forgive sins, and only God can forgive sins, he is none other than God himself. Jesus here is deliberately claiming to be God in human flesh. And that's why he forgives the man's sins, because he can. He he isn't saying that God will forgive your sins, son, one day. He, he, He is claiming to be God. Now I said 
that there was another way to answer this question. Some people might say, any miracle worker could heal someone. The harder thing is to really, even though it's invisible, the harder thing is to really and effectively and completely forgive someone's sins. Healing takes power. Forgiveness, though, will cost something. And ultimately, it costs Jesus his life. I think it is deeply ironic that Jesus here initiates a conflict that deliberately that he knows will ultimately lead to his death on the cross. When Jesus says, I forgive you, it actually leads him into the very conflict which will take him to the cross where he obtains that forgiveness. And the reason this paralyzed man here on his bed can be forgiven, the reason you and I can be forgiven is because Jesus came and bore our sins in himself on the cross. He died in my place and in your place. So even here at the beginning of Mark's gospel, we're only in chapter 2, and the shadow of the cross falls across the path of Jesus. So what, what are we meant to say about Jesus then in this third shock? I, I want to suggest to you that this implant, we spent a bit long on this last one, we're nearly done now. At this last shock, I think, speaks to us about the determination of Jesus to fulfill his mission. He provokes this conflict because he knows where it will end and he is determined to go there. At this point, nobody really even knows who he is. He's determined to complete his mission. He was born to die. And I, I want you to notice that this determination has something in it of love. Think about this house here with a hole in the roof. Many of the people in this room are looking to Jesus and wanting to use him to get what they think they really want. And the rest of them want to kill him. Half of them want to use him, the other half want to kill him. And here is a majestic, determined, loving saviour who despite what is in their heart, he isn't going to the cross in response to something in them. He's going to the cross because they're lost. They don't even know it. His focus on the cross is in the full knowledge of who they are. And Jesus goes to the cross not because of something in them. He goes to the cross because this is what he's like in spite of what they're like and what we're like. There's a verse in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul. It's in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 6 to 8, if you're taking notes. Paul says this, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died, not for the godly, for the ungodly. And Paul goes on, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Did you hear that? 
while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I want to say to you that in his loving determination, Jesus is way ahead of the game here. Jesus here is taking the first steps towards the cross where he will lay down his life so that sinners like me, sinners like us, can be forgiven. And we're going to see this theme grow and develop as we move throughout the Gospel of Mark. Now, let me, let me just close with this. We, we were thinking about those energetic friends earlier and their determined love for their paralyzed friend. And I was reminded in my preparation of an old hymn. I, I, I've never known to sing it recently. But the, this old hymn is entitled, I Have a Friend. I don't know if that sort of reminded me of it. But um, in, in the hymn, the true friend is the Lord Jesus. And in this hymn, the hymn writer tells the story of how Jesus comes from heaven to earth to, to save him, the, the, the hymn writer, this great rescue mission. And he comes with love and determination. I, I, I've, I've put the uh, words on the screen here. Let me just read a verse or two from this hymn or poem. This is what the hymn writer says, very personal term. Speaking about Jesus, the friend, I have a friend. It was a lonely path he trod from every human soul apart. Known only to himself and God was all the grief that filled his heart. Yet from the track, he turned not back. There's that loving determination. Till where I lay in want and shame, he found me. Blessed be his name. Then dawned at last that day of dread, when desolate yet undismayed, with wearied frame and thorn-crowned head, he, God-forsaken and man-betrayed, was then made sin on Calvary, and dying there in grief and shame, he saved me. Blessed be his name. In the last verse of this hymn, the writer concludes with these words, Long as I live, my song shall tell the wonders of his dying love. And when at last I go to dwell with him, his sovereign grace to prove, my joy shall be his face to see. And bowing there with loud acclaim, I'll praise him. Blessed be his name. Friends, this is why the Christian message makes people sing. This is why the message of the Christian gospel is called good news. This is why this message has changed the world. Because Jesus is the true friend. Let's close with this. We've seen three surprises here in the story. Like a surgeon, Jesus is always challenging us to get to our hearts. But he's eager and willing to forgive. And behind it all, like the greatest, truest friend, is his great determination to go all the way to the cross to save us because he's always ahead of us. He's always ahead of us in his mercy and grace. Jesus, challenge, eagerness, and loving determination. Friends, these are the things that when you see them and grasp them will cause faith to be born and to grow and rise in your heart. You may have noticed I entitled today's talk, Crowds, Critics and Converts. Don't just be one of the crowd. Curious, passive, listening, but never responding. And whatever you do, don't be a critic. Sitting in miserable judgment on Jesus 
like those religious leaders. Come and trust the one who died to be your true saviour, the one who died to make you the real you. Let's bow for a moment, shall we? And we'll pray. Father, we want to bring our thanks to you for this time. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for who he is. And we thank you for why he came. We thank you that in a world that is so upside down, a world so often full of pain and difficulty, even here in Galilee in this story, and we thank you for the way that Jesus just so majestically comes to deal with our deepest needs. How we thank you that Jesus can forgive our sins, make us clean, bring us home, Father, we pray that you would help us to see what is really there. Would you open our eyes and would you help us to grasp who Jesus really is? We pray that you would help us by your spirit and that that faith that we so need would be born in our hearts and would grow and mature. We pray in his precious name. Amen.